This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. Hello, everybody. Today's interview is with Luis Quende from Aragon, and we talk about three main things. First, we talk kind of specifically about these projects that are organically springing up in the Ethereum commons, um, where 10 plus different groups kind of come together and, and form this like working group to focus on transparency or, you know, a messaging platform or whatever. And Luis and I talk about how they're formed and how they're governed uh, because Aragon's part of a lot of them. And it's actually kind of funny because even though Luis and I had this conversation about a month ago, this work is actually work that I'm doing a lot today, um, being kind of a meta community manager or steward in the Ethereum commons. So that's the first thing we talk about. The second thing we talk about is around crypto millennials and how, you know, millennials and digital natives, they see Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as like real things, as real entities. And they're actually much more likely to invest in them than older people. And this is because, as Luis says, like, hey, it's it's this ease of use mindset where, you know, you're born, things are easy. And you kind of like, as you get closer to reality and adulthood, you're like, whoa, this is how this works. This is way too frictiony and way too hard to do. Let's make it easier. So, so that's what he, Luis, says is the main difference between these kind of millennials and and some of these older folks that are used to their routines um, and the status quo. And the third thing that we talk about is is trust and the scarcity of trust. And Luis makes this great distinction between, you know, thinking about kind of professional trust and and how. Um, we can kind of make things trustless to make the transaction cost of things much lower. And as we kind of do that, we get a more abundance and more time to focus on, you know, and give more space to human to human trust and kind of vulnerability based trust uh, with your close friends and close family. So those are the three things we talked about. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode in season one of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take kind of a systems thinking approach to creating a better future. We look at a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. Um, And today, we're focusing on the macro system, and I'm very happy to introduce Luis Quende, a co-founder of Aragon, a blockchain project that helps projects with decentralized government. Um, Luis, thanks for being on the show, and welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to dive in. Um, so first, could you guys kind of give the listeners a intro to Aragon and specifically the work that you guys have done recently with Aragon OS? Sure. So Aragon is a platform for decentralized governance. That basically means that we enable people to create decentralized organizations. And those organizations may be something similar to a traditional company or maybe a nonprofit or uh, maybe any kind of, you know, the organizations that we are seeing today in the blockchain space, like any open source project with some governance or voting mechanism. Um, and, you know, basically Argon OS is what enables that. It's a, uh, it's a system, it's a, um, a kernel, so to say, um, a base for building new applications that enables developers to build applications that uh, build on top of our governance. So, uh, to put an example, you may create a voting app uh, which has permissions to um, withdraw funds from a finance app. And then uh, some people may have the permission to create new voting, so that voting app, so the voting app in the end has permission to uh, withdraw some funds from you know, some uh, finance app or whatever. 
which could have funds raised via token sale. Mm -hmm. So you can create uh, like different super complex governance systems. Um, and that's very important today because it's the first uh, you know, time in, in humankind in which you can really experiment with different governance models uh, that we even even dream of before. Yeah, that's interesting. And like you say, it's trying to you know offer these different governance models for these decentralized organizations. And we saw one recently that's kind of at the um, kind of recently in the blockchain space with decentralized governance and how it might not be good or bad, or with like Tezos and like you know the Tezos Foundation versus the Tezos Company. So these are kind of we are on the kind of like cutting edge. Of like how should we organize these kinds of things? Um, so diving a little bit deeper into the Aragon OS, I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the like specifically like some of the things that you're doing. You know, and I'd love to actually hear about like the applications that you have here around this kind of the default apps that you have and kind of the user apps that people can build on top of it on top of them what exactly is an app and um and and how what kinds of apps are you going to roll out on top of the platform so it's uh it's very funny because really an app on an organization on an Aragon organization is um anything or any like smart contract um that uh has some permissions over the organization so for example if you have an app that is a finance app that has some permission over some other app mm -hmm. in the organization, for example, um, a voting app or, or the other way around, then that kind of counts as an app that you interact with, an app that you actually uh, you know, have installed in your organization. And so there are different apps that we include by default, for example, a token manager. So you can manage tokens, you can do vesting schedules for, for founders, employees, whatever. Um, there is also a voting app, which is a very basic version of a um, simple democracy app in which you can uh, let your token holders vote on proposals. Um, there's also a groups app, which mm -hmm. basically lets you create groups. It's very similar to how operating systems work. Uh, you have you know some groups and you can be, as a user, you can be included in one of those groups. And then uh, for being part of that group, you can have a different set of permissions. For example, uh, you may say that a particular uh, groups of users may have the power to open votings, whereas other kinds of users could not. Mm. Um, then we have a finance app, which is uh, basically it's an abstraction over all the tokens and all the assets that the, an organization has. So you may have, you know, 10 different tokens, and then you may create different budgets, uh, budgeting mechanisms. So you can create a budget for, I don't know, Q4 of this year, and then you can like basically uh, specify what is the maximum amount of tokens that you can withdraw during that period? Um, and then you can give permissions to people, for example, the founders, to, to use the money, to use the capital. Mm. Then we have a raising app, which mm. is basically uh, allows for uh, fundraising via token sales. So you can either do a private token sale or a public token sale. Um, it's very easy, it's very neat. Then you have the permissions app, which is um, the final app that allows to change all the permissions inside the others. The, you know, all the other apps mm. are basically optional. You can uninstall them the same way that you can uninstall uh, an app on your phone. But the permissions app is the one that actually lets you change uh, you know, permissions and actually lets you build the organization. Because if you look at it, an organization is just a social structure of uh, you know, who has the permissions to perform what. Mm -hmm. So that's the app that lets you change that and lets you build whatever governance mechanism you want. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. So I like that that 
outline, which is there are all, all these specific versions that are saying how does capital get allocated, how does capital get tracked, you know, how does governance get allocated, how does governance get tracked, and then like the meta one is like, hey, what are the permissions, what is the list of apps that we as an organization want to use, yeah. which people can operate within them, should we use, you know, this kind of democracy or liquid democracy or whatever, so those, that makes sense. Um so and it's exciting to just see um, one final note before we kind of move to some of these more kind of abstract ideas here. I just love to see with Aragon, you guys are actually, um, you know, you guys are pumping out code, you know. So you're you're out there, you've you've done a token sale, and you guys are working on things. Applications are coming out. You have a bunch of beta. Um, do you have like beta organizations as well using some of these apps? So we have like 8K organizations using it for the testnet, uh, but right now the version that they are all using is a very outdated version, like mm -hmm. an alpha version. It's actually very funny because uh, that is the version that we released like way before the token, uh, because, you know, obviously we are the philosophy that you have to release some product before raising a shitload of money for a lot of people. That's really helpful and very, very healthy. Um, so we did that first version, but the honest, like the thought process for the first version was to make it like very for traditional organizations, for very traditional organizations, like very traditional startups. And so, to, you know, at some point we figured out that that wasn't the way forward, and that if we are building the future of organizations, we really have to focus on the use cases that we cannot even think about. And the current way to do that is to create a super open system and to let developers build on top of it. Mm. So that's why we have uh, kind of redesigned everything with Argon OS and refactored everything from scratch, basically. Cool. Yeah, you went to this more modular system. That's cool. So thinking about and, and going to what you're saying there about the future and where where the going to where the puck is headed, um, a big thing that you guys have been doing is kind of coordinating and collaborating with like the general Ethereum ecosystem. And there are kind of two big examples of this. Um, the first one is on this like transparency initiative that you and a bunch of other projects are part of. Could you talk more about what that initiative is and why you guys are part of it? Cool. So yeah, sure. The transparency initiative is very important for the for the whole ecosystem. Uh, in our case, you know, we got started publishing all of our finances months ago uh, in transparency.argon that one. And so you can basically go there and see how we are spending all the funds that, that we raised. And that creates a lot of peer pressure for a lot of other projects to do the same. And, you know, in the end, we don't consider ourselves to be a startup. We consider ourselves to be an open source project. And so you are really, you know, you really have to respect your community and empower it. So that's the way we're trying to do that. I just have to say that um, most of the credits go to the maker DAO guys. The maker mm -hmm. guys are the ones behind the, you know, the DAI stablecoin. Yeah. And they were the first ones, uh, as far as I know, to publish their finances. Um, so we kind of clone that for our own use case. And I think everyone everyone else should do that too. Yeah. I love it. I think, I mean, in this transparency thing, is pretty crazy. So it's, if you go to projecttransparency.org, you have over, you know, $660 million of represented market cap on here. Companies like Aragon, CoFounded, District OX, et cetera all on here and all saying, hey, we are part of this transparency initiative. We think it's a crucial part to this space to be transparent, to, you know, operate as an open source project to kind of allow for other, you know, for, for the community to kind of do diligence on us or what have you. Have you seen, by the way, as a result of this transparency, have other projects been interested in joining it or have you felt like there's been kind of more transparency in the space in general? Well, you know, this kind of things uh, go slow. And so, uh, for example, when we 
uh, put some vesting on for for ourselves in our token sale. Um, I think we were also like the second or third ones doing that in the industry, but we really made it a big deal out of that. So um, and then we started like seeing results probably like, three months after mm-hmm. of a lot of token sales doing the same, you know, putting reasonable vesting schedules for the founders. Um, so I think we'll see the same results regarding transparency and we'll see that happening a few months from now. Uh, in my opinion, what's going to be the killer here for adoption of these transparency frameworks is to have some way to create decentralized organizations. Because once you have a decentralized organization um, and you are giving people, the community, the power to actually spend that funds and you know coordinate and reach consensus on how to spend them, then that requires transparency because you know you cannot vote without transparency. So um, I think transparency is the first building block, but really adoption will come when we have the second one, BLT, which is governance. Yeah, that's interesting. And like you say, it's almost impossible to have governance without transparency. If you want to, as a decentralized organization, operate, you know, information needs to flow very freely throughout the organization for people to have the right, you know, information to make decisions. Um, and if you don't have that, then it's very difficult to to govern. Um, so that's that's one interesting side here about how you guys are part of this, you know, in this project. Tell me, so the MakerDAO people did this, and I guess that the, or they were the ones who first started this, but I guess Santiment was maybe the group that said, hey, let's bring together. I guess what I want to know is how did this project transparency group like come together and how did you guys kind of agree who's making the website? You know, these are kind of these weird mm. things where you're in this decentralized world. Who is the owner, quote unquote, of Project Transparency? Yeah, I think the guys at Sentiment were the ones, uh, you know, making it happen. Um, so I, I think it's all on them. I'm not really sure if like a lot of other projects kind of participated into the website and all of that. But as far as I know, it was Sentiment. Got it. And in... I guess that they, within this world, they kind of, they say, hey, I'm going to do this. Does anybody else want in? And it's kind of an opt-in system where you say, oh, I would like to be part of that transparency initiative. Here are my thoughts on it. Is that kind of how it flows? It's like one person champions it and then other people kind of get behind it? Yeah, it's it's the, the nice thing about this world, right? This, everything is opt-in. Uh, you have the info. You can decide by yourself. And um, in this particular case, it's very funny because, as I said before, it creates a lot of peer pressure for other projects. Um, so I really hope that, you know, half a year from now, if you don't have a transparency policy, you are not able to raise a cent on a token sale. Yep, exactly. Um, so let's talk about another version of this kind of this kind of melding of the Ethereum community in some ways with this big group of people that migrated from Slack, which has lots of bots and scams or whatever, over to Rocket Chat. Um, so could you kind of talk about um, that migration and how, how that has happened within the community? Um, do you mean how the migration went or, or yeah. So, you know, um, basically the migration was a very funny process because, uh, you know, people are used to a tool and then it's very hard for them to change. It was also, a very democratic and kind of uh, details and facts-based decision. So um, if you look at the GitHub thread where we are making the decision, uh, it started out as like Aragon governance proposal. And Aragon governance proposals are these kind of proposals that we put out in GitHub and then uh, people can vote and discuss whether to actually make it a reality or not. And they usually impact the governance of the Aragon project. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people started kind of arguing about, you know, first of all, do we need to migrate? And after we kind of had community consensus on, yes, we need to migrate, mainly because, you know, we cannot 
leave the fate of our communities to a proprietary tool by some folks at the other side of the ocean who are, really don't care about our needs. Um, after that, then, you know, next step is uh, what is the tool that we choose, right? What is the tool that we migrate to? And then that was a very fact-based decision too. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it, you know, we have a lot of Riot versus Rocket Chat comparisons, uh, even Discord and other tools, because, you know, we wanted to migrate to an open source tool, but other people suggested other like proprietary tools too. And at the end, you know, I think the best tool for our current needs one. And that doesn't mean that, you know, Riot, which was the other tool, is not a wonderful tool. It's just like, you know, the community decided what were the priorities. And and I think it was a very healthy process. And I'm looking forward to doing more of this kind of community lead of arts. Uh, because first of all, you have to agree with your community. And then a lot of other communities jump in and you have to kind of lead them to a consensus. And that was a very hard but also very uh you know interesting process yeah well i think that there's kind of two levels of community here as well which is that there's the aragon specific community which is like hey we're using github as a way to kind of get the community engaged and usually it's about governing the platform itself but this one was about hey how do we actually communicate with each other oh let's move away from slack because they're not really connected to our needs let's move to you know kind of an open source system here and then and that and that happened that kind of bubbled up within your community and then tell me how that then overlapped with because i think there's maybe 10 other projects um that you kind of worked with in terms of this big migration to say hey it's not only just us that have this problem slack it's like a, a full list of projects who are dealing with scams in their slacks and we want to switch to something else tell me how that happened how it became you guys with decentraland with co-founded etc well, you know, one of the of the things about this migration is that um, we were all afraid for you know of losing some users in the in the way. So we basically said, okay, uh, if we are going to do this, it has to be like a community wide migration because then we are less exposed to this risk of you know losing users along the way. Um, so you know, we reached consensus on doing that and kind of migrating at the same time. And then the hard part was obviously to convince other projects to follow the way. <clears throat> and also there's a very funny part, which is that we have different different couple of options, Riot and Rocket Chat. And in our case, we tried to make the right call uh, and migrate to Rocket Chat. But also a lot of other projects had to make the same call. And it was kind of about, it was more about being united Yep. than about making the right product call, if that makes sense. So, you know, if in our case, for example, at one point in time, we were not inclined for Riot, but then, you know, you see all of their projects that really want Rocket Chat, and you're not going to be the one that basically divides them. So um, as kind of a community for it, we said, okay, we're going to go uh, for Rocket Chat because it's what the other people want to want to go for. Uh, in order not to divide the community. So you have to sometimes make these kind of trade-offs. Yeah, it's fascinating. It kind of reminds me of a thing within organizations where you have this concept of disagree and commit, where at the beginning you kind of debate back and forth, uh, should we use Rock Chat, should we use Riot, blah, blah, blah. And then after kind of a decision's been made, it's like, okay, we all need to do this together or else we'll still have this like splintered ecosystem. Um, so, I mean, I think that that is... And if you are part of the Ethereum community and want to either join the trans- project transparency or if you want to also migrate your thing to Rocket Chat, um, those are two yeah. things, two places that the community as a whole and kind of the outer community is generally like going for, which is which is really interesting and fascinating. And one final note before we transition is 
was the migration to Rocket Chat was that kind of how did that work from a governance perspective around like wh who was the lead there was were you guys the lead with Aragon and then kind of other people followed or, or what did that look like? Yeah, we were we were leading the migration. Basically, Tatu, who is the community lead, uh, took care of that, and I think he did an extraordinary job. Got it. Yep. So you guys were the lead on that one, and you guys more followers on the project transparency one. Cool. Um, so let's kind of transition away from this more the kind of Ethereum crowd and how you guys are kind of uh, governing in between projects, um, and let's talk about blockchain with respect to kind of power here, and specifically with respect to kind of how the like young people are seeing Bitcoin and blockchain and those kinds of things. So I guess, Luis, could you just kind of start by saying um, how for like you and, and, and how are you 20? Is that correct? I'm 22 right now. 22. Okay. Well, you were somewhere in your 20s, early 20s. So you're 22. <laughs> There's some people in the space who are, you know, like clearly like 60 or what have you. Could you tell me how kind of like you, and I'm 26, by the way, how you kind of see the and, and, and people within the space have been talking about how like youth in general have been much more into this kind of movement than kind of some of the older people. Could you kind of dive into have you seen that yourself firsthand and and how do you see this kind of the kind of youth perspective towards blockchain as possibly different than the kind of older perspective towards blockchain? Yeah, I think you know when you're younger and you build your routines, do you like build routines that are different from the generation before you? So, for example, uh, a generation before me, it may be normal to go to a notary public and like spend a couple hours there for the notary to like sign something, and that's it. Um, for you know, for someone that has basically been working with the internet and been interacting with the internet since you know since born almost. Um, it's totally stupid that you have to like go somewhere else for that third party trusted by the state to certify that something has happened, right? Why cannot you like, uh, you know, tweet it or use the blockchain or overall use the internet where millions of people can actually see what you have done and, you know, cryptographically verify that you have actually performed an action or, you know, created some document or whatever notary publics do. So, when that happens, people start building different routines. And so what's happening right now is that uh, as every single generation, we're building different routines that were previous generations. But it just happens to, you know, that, that the change has been so fast and things are accelerating so much that the routines, the life that uh, young people, uh, young people do right now are so different from the ones that the generation or, or, you know, even like people from two generations before have been doing. So, uh, it's kind of very normal. Um, also, people are not very uh, educated on how to learn on a continuous basis. So, you you know, usually you go through the education system and that's about it. And then you are supposed to have that knowledge for the rest of your life. Uh, but then it turns out that things change so fast that maybe you should be learning, you know, all the time. And people that are used to this very industrial lifestyle in which you learn something and then you work on that for 40 years, uh, I guess they will use miss out of a lot of things that are happening right now because you have to be constantly learning. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think both of those are, yeah, on the first one, kind of we are, the way that we're built and the routines that we're built in, it's like, oh, you know, we were never used to doing a notary thing. We're used to the, the speed of the internet and all of our social interactions is 
as children and through school and all these things. And then we get to the real world and we're like, wait, real world, why aren't you this fast too? Um, And then that also on on both the value output side or like the checking side, but also on the learning side where you're like, oh man, I need to learn more quickly here because the world's changing so fast. It kind of reminds me in your, your note there about the industrial lifestyle reminds me of these kind of um, frameworks of organizations over time and how like we're transitioning from like an orange mindset, which is where we think of ourselves as a machine, um, to a, like a green mindset where we think of ourselves as a family. And in fact, like a teal mindset, um, like the color teal in order to, uh, where we think of ourselves as kind of an organism. Um, so with that as kind of a frame, maybe how do you think of, when you think about, um, new organizations that exist, like if you were to metaphor them into either machine or family or organism or something different, how do you kind of think about the way that these, um, these new organizations kind of talk with each other? It's, it's really hard because what we're seeing is that transaction costs are coming down. And so that means that, uh, the firm, the, you know, the group of people that get together to perform something, um, and they are able to perform that in a better, more efficient way because they are together that's kind of fading away in some form and kind of transition into a uh, networks of value, markets of value, where you may be a player in that market, but you don't necessarily, um, you know, you don't necessarily are in some sort of like company or very formal regular structure. You may become a part of that because you buy tokens, for example, and you are a holder of that tokens and therefore you're in that network and you are either uh, you know, a consumer or a, or a producer or some kind of prosumer too. Um, so it's fading away a lot and it's kind of coming to this, you know, kind of coming to the individual level. Uh, so, you know, for example, we're seeing a lot of freelancers and contractors at this kind of, you know, digital nomad lifestyle going on. And that's just like very early signs of what's to come. And what's to come is that people are going to be so, sovereign they are going to be so individual because right now you know you don't maybe need to be in some like industrial age company to produce or to create or even to maintain yourself actually it's probably better to retain most of the value to yourself and you know choose uh, whether to work for for someone else or whether to work on your own thing or whether to use contract your skills uh, on demand right so i think we are seeing this transition to like super big firms and it's also a matter of, uh, you know, power. And so, for example, governments have the power to coerce and to extort people, and they have the physical the physical power to do that. Um, but today, with cryptography and the cryptographic tools we have, they don't have that power anymore. I mean, they still have the power over the, your physical self, but they don't have the power over your digital self. So what happens there is that... Um, you know, you don't need to be a huge and, you know, as, as big as possible government to be successful. You can be an individual and you know that individual can basically take over a whole government as we have seen with a lot of hacks and, and all of these scandals. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. As you say, it's like this transition kind of away from economies of scale more towards like economies of like self-driven, the kind of co-evolution of self-driven work uh, is it might be a more efficient way to to operate in society as transaction costs have decreased, like you said. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. 
And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. So one one note more on this like kind of thought of power here, um, and and the government's having lots of kind of power and kind of maybe coercive power here. Do you think that the, um, you know, something that I think about within this is like you know we as as, as kind of younger people were told, hey, you're going to be something in the world. You're going to go out there and like do something. You can be special. And our parents told us that. And like for our parents' generation, yeah. everything was up and to the right. Generally, it was like, wow, things are getting so much better. And now we've kind of felt the world and we're kind of like disillusioned by it in some ways and we kind of want to it feels to me a bit like we want to kind of break the world because we want kind of versions of power ourselves because we were told that we deserved it um so tell me a little bit more about how you think um either for yourself specifically or for like kind of younger people in general how do you think about this kind of transition of power and how we think about power yeah, there's a lot of people, especially in, in our generation, that feel like they deserve things just because, you know, they have been promised the uh, the promised land, so to say. Um, <laughs> and especially, you know, in Spain, that, that's so funny here because a lot of people study in the college and, you know, they have their degrees, whatever. And then they are, you sit and relax and they are like, well, if there is some job for me, I will get it. And if there is no job for me, then, you know, that sucks and that's the problem of the system that's probably you know not my problem at all right and yeah. you sit and relax and and that's that's basically you know that's a problem that you talk about like you know a lot of uh, people our parents our politicians all of that they kind of you know promise us a better world and then uh you know probably 40 years ago they were all talking about how technology would free us and we would work you know two hours a day or one hour a day or whatever and then we are actually the other end of the spectrum where, you know, uh, actually wages are coming down and work hours are coming up and, uh, you know, technology hasn't freed us. If anything, it has made us more, you know, it has basically enslaved us more. And so I think we're at this point in time where our generation is so fed up with this, but on the other hand, they don't know what to do. Like, because the, the, the previous methods of protesting, like going into the streets, they are... They are worthless. I mean, you you go into the street and whatever. I mean, there is police. There is police attacking you, and and that's the end of it. And like, governments don't want to end up in any way because if if they, you know, if they fight us, even the UN or even Europe, if they fight us, basically they are uh, they are in a very bad position because they are the monopoly of power. So they cannot like you know uh, have any problem with that. They are. Uh, they are fine with that violence. So what we can do is we can fight with code, we can fight with technology, we can have with tools that uh, give us anonymity and make us more free. Um, but we have to think about that. We have to think about the new methods of protesting and changing things because the old ones are not going to work. Yeah, I like that as a everybody's goal, lots of people's goals generally are these kind of new ways of saying, hey, we want a better society. And the question is, how do you get there? And for people like you and I, it's like, you're like, hey, 
a great way to do that is by building a decentralized governance platform because that will give us more power and a, a way to kind of exit the current system in some ways and to kind of govern us in a decentralized way. Um, so that makes sense. And I guess to conclude here, do you have any final thoughts either on Aragon or um, on transparency or a kind of, you know, youth and blockchains and power? Yeah, I think the the whole motto here is uh, that we need to remove trust from intermediaries that are betraying us, and we need to focus on the cryptographic truth. We need to focus on building systems that are based on math and mathematic truth instead of just trust. Because you know, history is telling us a lesson that is basically that trust is very scarce, and we shouldn't abuse it. And we have abused it for a long, long time because technology didn't allow us to. You know, we have to to basically depend on that, on it to to operate. But right now, we don't need to depend on it anymore. So, we should try to remove trust as much as possible and leave it for scarce things uh, such as friendship or, you know, uh, this kind of very close relationships. But we shouldn't have to trust our government. We shouldn't have to trust our notary publics, and we shouldn't have to trust our our bank. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think I? Agree. So trust is definitely a scarceness. In theory, maybe becoming more abundant as we kind of take trust and put it, push it into like math. Do you think though that there's a kind of an issue with saying, "Hey, I can't trust you," and and, and instead of kind of building trust between us, we instead just like delegate the trust to math? Does that worry you at all? Well, you know, if if trust is if trust, sorry, is actually scarce, then um, we will try to leave it for things that are really important to us on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are certain things that shouldn't depend on, on trust at all. So if anything, it will make trust more scarce and it will make trust more valuable. And it will be a higher quality level of trust that we have right now. Um, so to say, it will be more human. So you shouldn't need to try to you know, place trust into your work life or institutions that are really um trying to like operate for a business basis you should try to place trust in things that are more family-based more human more you know human relationships i don't know if i'm spreading myself correctly but it's making trust more human and less necessary for day-to-day tasks if that makes sense no i think that makes a ton of sense i think that there's we're using the same word trust here to kind of denote two different things one of them is like ability to have low transaction costs at a kind of macro um, kind of professional level. And then there's also, as you're saying, trust within your family, trust within your community, kind of relationship-based or kind of vulnerability-based trust. I think that differentiating between those two kinds of trust is is great. And if we can maybe lower the transaction costs on the first kind of trust, then maybe we will have be able to put a lot more time and energy towards that second kind of trust. Um, is, that, is that kind of correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome. Um, Well, Luis, thank you so much for your time today. Um, And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, If you want to go and check out, uh, if you want to be a beta organization, if you're an organization that's working in the space and wants some kind of governance, um, definitely go to and check out uh, Aragon.one. Or if you're part of just another Ethereum kind of uh, business and want to get in on transparency or to migrate to Rocket Chat, do that. If you're somebody who's like a young person looking to change the world, <laughs> this, this is not you a bad our team. <laughs> yeah, nice, exactly. Um, um, and if you want to support me on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash Rieslandmark. That's slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Luis, thanks so much again for your time. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Bye.